0: Welcome to Pro Corner. I'm your host Austin Sirhoff. This week is part two of my episode with Rowdy Gaines. I hope you enjoyed last week and got an insight to just just how sharp that he was and how dedicated he was mentally to his craft of being a swimmer. Even back when you know the title of the episode is the first pro swimmer, which I believe Rowdy is, especially in the modern era. But back then. It wasn't really a concept that was really available to him until after his career was over, and he started pursuing opportunities outside of swimming that were opened up by winning his gold medals in 1984. This episode is about those opportunities. Rowdy has been the voice of swimming for over 30 years now. He started with the 1992 Olympics as the color commentator, and throughout that time, he's honed his craft the way that he honed his swimming craft. And he's understood about what makes him great and what people want him to deliver when he does things like the ISL or the, Olymp- the Olympic broadcast every four years. I'd really like for everyone to pay attention to two things about this episode. Uh, number one, Rowdy's background uh, growing up was his dad was a, a director of uh, TV show episodes and movies. And Rowdy himself grew up wanting to be a director. He thought that the production side of making films was super interesting, and he wanted to be a part of that process as well. But once he got older and realized that maybe making movies wasn't something that was within his purview, he saw the big picture goal that his dad also did when he was younger that he also wanted to pursue. It wasn't directing movies or directing TV show episodes. It was telling stories and entertaining people. And it turns out broadcasting was the way he could do that. So he didn't get super attached to, I need to be a movie director. I need to be on the production side of making TV show episodes. It was, let's zoom out. Let's see what the big picture goal of what I want is, and let's find another way to achieve it. And it wasn't you know, that intentional. I mean, the opportunities that are available to an athlete by happenstance, like himself, when you're done with your sport, is generally broadcasting. And he mentions that his path into broadcasting was a result of happenstance and proximity, but he was able to achieve his goal by changing his perspective of what the goal actually was. And I think that's super important in any aspect of life, whether it's sports or your job or, you know, your life in general and what you want to achieve while you're on this earth. Try to have perspective of, am I focused on one specific route to my goal? Or do I actually know what the bigger goal is that I'm using this route to pursue? The second thing that I'd like for everyone to focus on is just how much preparation he puts into the Olympic broadcast. We actually do a really nice deep dive into the production process behind setting up the Olympic broadcast. Um, If you watch uh, the video version of this episode, at the end, he actually shows his paper and his notes that he takes before calling the ISL semifinals, which he had just gotten done with back in October when we talked. And it's really important for everyone to understand that because when you watch the Olympic broadcast, the common criticism that people have of Rowdy is, ah, it's too simplistic. It's too broad. Where are the technical details? Where is the analysis of Michael Phelps's stroke count or, Give me, you know, specific techniques that he does in the underwaters that makes him so great. And Rowdy knows himself. He knows those technical details, right? He knows how to count Michael Phelps' strokes. But that's not what's important to the broad audience. And it's not important to his goal of telling stories and getting people just as excited as he is about what he's watching. And there's a ton of preparation that goes into executing that process so the second takeaway that i got that maybe will help frame how you guys listen to this episode is the simp- seemingly simplest things which there's nothing simple about the olympic broadcast it's an it's an incredibly complex thing and there's a lot going on that he has trained himself to manage and made himself an expert of over the years um the seemingly simplest thing can have the most preparation on earth i mean think about route he was a sprinter You know, his longest event was the 200. His best event was the 100. And in his time, it took, you know, 50, 51, 52 seconds. I can't remember what he went when he won in 84. But his preparation that went into it was so detailed and advanced. If you remember from the last episode, he literally went to the library and researched how home performers at the Olympics did when the Olympics were on their soil. Okay. Okay. So he takes that same level of preparation in the Olympics where he's executing, you know, a seemingly simple skill, something that seems um, easy to understand, but his process and his preparation behind it is so deeply skilled and textured and has so much experience and intention and thought behind it. So the takeaway for us is you can prepare as much or as little as you want for any task if you wanna do it right. And for that, I have a deep admiration for Rowdy. I really liked talking to him. I loved exploring uh, how much care he puts into, into everything he does, and how much care he puts into something as important as, to swimming as the Olympic broadcast. There's a reason that people who really get it understand and will say, Rowdy's super important for the sport of swimming. It gets people excited about it. Millions and billions of people excited about it, who have never watched a person take a stroke in their life outside of a week in August every four years. So enjoy the episode. I hope you learn a few things about what you can take away and apply to your own daily life, to your job, to your sport. And um, that's enough of me. Let's get right to it. Here's Rowdy Gaines. I want to shift to your career as a broadcaster and before we get to the opportunities that you got after 84 because I do really want to dig into that it's it's really cool to me how you got started Um, what was your relationship to entertainment growing up and did you always want to express yourself in that way as a job
1: The answer is yes, because my father, Austin, was a motion picture director. He,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, directed primarily television commercials. He did direct one motion picture. It was a documentary. But he uh, and I really wanted to do what my dad did. I wanted Mm -hmm. to go into production. I wanted to be a director. Um, And then, you know, at some point after the Olympics, that that changed a little bit um, because of the the public speaking and the appearances and stuff. I got very comfortable in front of an audience. And then this, uh, back then Austin in 1985, a fledgling network called ESPN called me and asked me if I would do the, uh, the broadcast of, uh, or call the swimming part of the battle of the network stars. And if um, you look that up, it's sort of, uh, uh, it's sort of like a 10 event program, mm-hmm. 10 different sports where they put all these celebrities in different sports and it was the, the, networks versus each other. So ABC, CBS, NBC, there was no Fox. We're all against each other. Um, did, and uh, so I, I called the swimming race.
0: Did they call you because of your popularity or had no, you, had you I put was it was out? in Orlando. The... Okay. It was in
1: Orlando. I lived in Orlando.
0: It was so, uh, so it was heard. circumstance. Yes. That's incredible. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you met- you mentioned your dad being a director and you've always wanted to be and he worked with uh with Clint Eastwood a good bit too, right?
1: No, no. I got I got named after Clint Eastwood.
0: Okay, okay. That's so that's my the thing name that got is, sorted yeah, out. Yeah,
1: so my name is Rowdy Gaines, obviously. And then the there <laughs> was a I'm character <laughs> Hi, hi Austin. Nice to meet you. Um I know your mom and dad very well. You have you have amazing parents. Amazing parents, by the way. Uh, Polly and I, in fact, Polly and I go way back. Polly and I swam together in 82 at those same world championships I was uh, talking about. And Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, your father, one of the greatest baseball players ever. Loved that guy. Um, Anyway, I digress. Uh, I I, uh, uh, was named after a character called Rowdy Yates. Um, and Clint Eastwood played this character on, a, on an old TV show called Rawhide. Mm-hmm. It's a popular show in the late 50s, early 60s. And my dad, I think probably was a little tipsy one night and said, I'm going to call this guy Rowdy. Um, and uh, I was born with it. And my real name is Ambrose Gaines the Fourth, So um, I don't have a middle name. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, you know, I was born with Rowdy and it just stuck ever since. I don't think they had a an idea that they'd be Rowdy forever, but just is it's my name
0: who do you remember looking up to in the industry growing up uh you had your dad were you a big sports fan growing up were you watching um say football or baseball games and understanding the broadcasters going on there or was broadcasting something that was not really familiar to you until you got into it
1: nothing no okay
0: okay i mean no no i i didn't have any kind of um, infatuation
1: with any broadcaster or anything I mean I I, I love sports obviously you know you watch the uh, Jim McKay you know who was uh, to me you know a hero and not a hero but he was somebody you know, certainly looked up to and thought you know, he was like a Bob Costas mm-hmm. um, um, uh, that 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 most people are familiar with now yeah. Mike Tirico who's the the uh, host of the Olympics. He was the host of the Olympics, mini Olympics. He, he was the host in 1972 during the massacre in Munich and
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, was just, it was really cool, but I had no desire to be a broadcaster. I, I, I just liked movies. Okay. You know? I loved, I loved movies and uh, I was a huge movie fan and, and, um, and I was really into the directing side of things because of my dad and the cinematography and the production values and, and uh so i really you know i had this complete you know foolish goal of i was i wanted to be a movie director and uh so uh no broadcasting just it it just took it just took a turn on that on that whim and i really loved it Mm -hmm. and then they asked me to do it again and then uh, i got invited to do something else and something else and by the time i know it i'm doing the goodwill games in 1986 and um, and, uh, I didn't get to do 88, but I started in 92 and been going at it ever since.
0: So a broad stroke of between 1985 and 1992, did you have any, any mentors in the industry that helped you along in your process and believed in you and helped you improve? And if Absolutely. you did, and what did you learn from them? What did, what did you learn from those people that helped you out?
1: Absolutely. The the biggest I've had two huge two biggest mentors in, in my broadcasting career, and I I've had many. I mean, I can tell you about oh gosh, there's been so many. Ted Ted Robinson is a very dear friend, one of one of the most amazing guys. I've learned so much from him. But the two mentors for me, obviously, are John Neighbor and uh, Dan Hicks. Mm-hmm. Um, without them, there's no way I'd be doing the Olympics next summer. Either one of them, because they both. Have helped me so, so much, Austin. Um, John, uh, I, I, he would be the play-by-play, and I would be the color, and he just literally took me under his wing and, and taught me everything about how to look into the camera and how to call a race. You know, he would tell me, say, um, I'm going to tell you what's going on, and you're going to tell everybody why and how and who and And I'm just saying what you're doing everything else. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, just a little, a little hint like that really helped me a lot. Um, he would, he would really teach me how to get in and out of races and, and, uh, you know, when to shut up and when to talk. Um, and then Dan just took that to a completely different extreme, you know, especially in front of an Olympic audience where that's where we primarily work together. And, uh, uh, they're they're both complete professionals um and and uh and and the great thing about that is they're they're two of my dearest friends too mm-hmm. which that 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 to me tells me so much about the kind of people they are they're just really good people
0: uh you mentioned your first olympics was 88 let's talk about that one first uh, we don't have to run off each quadrennial up till 16 but i do want to start with 88 um what do you remember about that experience, whether it was things you enjoyed, things you knew you needed to improve? Because um, I imagine it had to have feel, felt very similar to swimming in 84, at least in terms of the butterflies and the fear and the, the channeling of the energy that you, you had to participate in. So what was, what was that experience like for you in terms of feelings and um, your senses? What do you remember about it?
1: So, um, so we're talking about 1992 because in 88, John neighbor, actually,
0: John, John neighbor. Yeah, no, no, John
1: neighbor did 88. And, uh, I learned a lot by, he did the color in 88. And I learned a lot by watching him in 88 sitting in my living room at home. Uh, uh, but 92 was the first and that was a triple cast. That was an NBC owned way ahead of its time. Three different channels, 24 hours a day of nothing but sports. Um and i called the swimming for the triple cast i didn't do the over the air broadcast but it was an nbc owned uh venture and for me i just uh, you know i gained my chops so to speak and the fact mm-hmm. that uh, you know we called every race austin awesome, every prelim every semi every final every 1500 so for me it was just a great experience and i think from that experience uh a little known fact, I actually uh, tried out for 96. Before 96, I did a, 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 an audition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I did the audition with Greg Gumbel. And it was a race mm. that we went into a studio and the producer said, we're not going to tell you which race. You're just going to go in there and commentate on a race. We're going to see how you do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was the 100th breaststroke that Nelson Diebel won in 1992. That was the race. Okay. And uh, from that race, I got hired for 96 and that was the first summer that I worked with Dan Hicks and there was a three man booth back then, three person booth, because Summer Sanders did the women and I did the men. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that Olympics was cool because it was all live in Atlanta. and you know, For me, it was, again, gaining that kind of experience and, and really I was just hooked after 96 for
0: sure. Did you teach yourself um, any sort of persona that you've developed from the beginning or when we hear you, because you've you've said countless times over the years on many different uh, media sources that this is just you. You're a huge fan of swimming. Like you said on this podcast, you're a historian. And it's genuinely exciting for you to call it. But I have to imagine there's at least a little bit of a structure to your persona. So what did you develop? Uh, what What were things that you did maybe in 96 that you maybe changed into 2000 and 2004? How, how did your persona change and shift and how did you improve yourself as as a media personality over the years?
1: Oh, that that's a really good question. Um, I'm trying to think back of myself in 96. Mm-hmm. I, I think for me, mainly, I learned, the nuances of the structure of the broadcasts and what i mean by that is there there are there are normally austin when you're doing a broadcast an olympics i'm talking olympics uh there's normally at least three or four people talking in your ear three different people Okay, And they're all talking to you sometimes at the same time while the race is going on. Really? For me. Yeah. Oh yeah. So for me, it's Dan Hicks who has to be number one. There's the producer who is one A because you've got to listen to him. And the third one is Mike Unger who has been with me every Olympic since 96. Um, and Mike is, uh, you, you've never seen this movie but you should really watch it you'd love it and because you're in the business now broadcast news is called okay um, it's got Ho- holly hunter and uh william hurt um and it's so good it's a really good movie but it's about the television business and about it's about a news person and you know he's a good looking guy and he's very well spoken but he he's terrible as a, an anchor you know he's sort of like a tom brokaw or or uh you know, Dan Rather type person, but he's an idiot. You know, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's a dummy. Um, and so Holly Hunter whispers in his ear on what to say on the broadcast. Well, Mike Unger's always been my Holly Hunter, I say, and the fact that he doesn't tell me what to say, but he gives me nuggets along the way. So basically what, back to your questions, what I've learned is how to adapt to listen to three people talking to my ear, still be able to pull out a sentence and not a pause to listen to them and still listen to Dan who is the most important person because he could be asking me a question. And if he asked me a question and I'm listening to Mike or Tommy, then I'm screwed, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the broadcast is screwed. So, and I've done that, especially early on in my career where Dan would sit there and ask me a question, but I was listening to Mike. And so those kinds of uh, structural dilemmas are, are what I've learned the most. But for me, again, and, and I'll say it again, is I really don't know half as much as so many other people involved in the sport. I, mm-hmm. I know somebody like you could easily take my job because you know so much about swimming, especially because you just retired and you know the the technical part of it. But I will tell you the reason why I get hired over and over again is because I have a passion for swimming. I still <laughs> I could talk swimming all day, man. I I still am a huge student of the sport. I still love to study swimming. Um, John Lawn just bought, uh, wrote a book on the history of swimming, and I can't wait to get my copy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's one of those things that for me, that part has never changed mm-hmm. throughout my seven Olympic Games.
0: You know, the passion is the part that I want to dig into. Uh, because I heard you talk again on Brett Hawks podcast and you mentioned that that is your (sighs) go-to, there's, there's a technical way that I can approach this and there's a sense of self way I can approach this. So let's, let's dig into both. Um, number one, you said on Brett's podcast, and I've heard you say it before, 99% of the people watching the Olympics, they don't know a lick about swimming. So how do you, um, gauge just how much you dig in, dig into say expertise because i think you, i think you've said before you know people don't even know what the backstroke flags are for but oh. from to, but from time to time you will throw an analysis like you know michael phelps is kicking further off the wall in the last lap and that's why he's getting ahead so right. how do you how do you gauge the level of expertise that you inject into a race
1: it, it's i think it's all in the setup and what I mean by the setup is early on in the Olympics, you start talking about the kinds of things that are technical that you can relate to the audience. Also, I always pretend, and I've done this a million times as I'm sitting next to my uncle, David, you know, I have a real uncle, David, and my uncle David doesn't know anything about swimming. And if I'm sitting next to my uncle, David, I'm talking to him about swimming. I'm going, see, this is what he's doing. Watch, watch right there. See, and and he doesn't know what I'm talking about, but now he's starting to grab, growl- you know, he doesn't know what he's seen but now he's starting to grasp a little bit because i'm trying to tell him
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so that's kind of what i do i, I pretend I'm, I'm talking to somebody that doesn't know anything about swimming and so i'll i'll definitely get the um the snide comments from the swimming audience but i don't really care about them mm-hmm. during the olympics because you're, you're talking about an audience of a hundred thousand versus an audience of 22 million that don't know anything about swimming yeah. so for me i can't worry about um, people, uh, that are concerned so much about, you know, um, cadence and tempo and what's their stroke tempo and stroke rate and all that stuff. I, I, nobody cares about that, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and so I don't talk about it. And, uh, I talk about the things that people can visualize, um, that they can actually see and feel, um, and feel the story that comes from that athlete, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, here's well, a good example is this guy, Nick Santos, you know, he's 40 years old. And, we, you know, I talked about his underwaters. So look at this guy. He's 40 years old. He can barely get up in the morning, but watch him come off the wall or something like that, you know, because people can relate to a 40-year-old man or a 40-year-old woman coming off the wall and not breathing for 15 meters, you know. So that that's basically what I do. I know that's probably not a good answer to your question, but for me, it's, it's – I, I don't want to use this term in a – derogatory way but it is kind of dumbing it down to the layman you know Uh,
0: it's it's Um, that's the key it's an incredible answer and it actually opens up a question that I didn't realize I was going to ask before we get into the more technical side of things quick break from the episode to do my first ever ad read and it's not because I'm sponsored and that's not a matter of principle I'd happy to be a sellout anytime someone wants to give me the opportunity to I'm actually promoting something of my own. So if you have a few seconds, uh, I have designed my own line of suits with bike Swim. They are my, it's my signature suit. Um, it's in the design of a blue bandana and it's a representative of something that's really important to me about swimming, which is striking out on my own and following the path of the rogue. To me, uh, the bandana is a symbol of that in American culture. So if you like the design, and you like listening to this podcast and want to find a way to, you know, engage with me more support what I'm doing, you know, as a pro athlete and as a podcast host, go to fikeswim.com, and go to my ambassador page. And you'll find links to uh, my suit design. I've designed a brief, a jammer for men. And I've also designed a bikini and a one piece for women. Uh, if you don't like my design, we have a, handful of other ambassadors, amazing swimmers, world record holders, American record holders, NCAA champions who design their own signature suit. So I guess the big picture that ask for you guys is go to fikeswim.com, check out all the products. I'm one of the ambassadors and I have my own signature suit. Back to the episode. I want to talk about Uncle Dave as the metaphor for the okay. audience. Um, you're basically telling a 10 day story to uncle Dave throughout the, throughout each Olympics. So number one, are you keeping notes of what you're telling uncle Dave slash the viewing audience from day one and understanding the narrative that you're carrying and the story that you're telling throughout? And does that inform say day four, day five, day six play calling? And second has uncle Dave slash the viewing audience, do you picture them as having learned over the last um 28 years or are you assuming that it's fresh every single time
1: uh, a little of both on on that last question you, you you obviously have a new audience every four years but you have a lot of returning audience i mean mm-hmm. it, the olympic swimming has been the number one sport since michael mm-hmm. you know it, it's kind of one and one a with gymnastics but it's it's without a doubt, you know, it's been the most popular sport since 2004. And so I think those people tune in every four years are the same people that are tuning in. Uh, more women watch the Olympics than men. Uh, uh, that generation of 40 to 60 is a generation that watches it. So I tried to uh, be fresh in my approach, but the the freshness really comes from the stories, Austin. It mm-hmm. comes from the athletes. It doesn't come from the way I explain it. It comes from talking about a kid who maybe lost their uh, a parent at a young age or mm-hmm. suffered through um, a bout with cancer or, you know, was third in the Olympic trials for two Olympic games in a row. And they finally get to make it. You know, a Dan Jansen story uh, where, you know, he, he makes three Olympics, slips and falls all three times and then finally wins the gold. People want to believe in in a great story, and so that is fresh every four years. The way I describe a race um, pretty much is steady um, from the technical side of things. You know, I do explain the backstroke flags every four years. I do explain the fin on the back of the block every four years. I kind of tell them when it was created, when it came into the sport. Um, I talk about, you know, the backstroke wedge now. I mean, all those kinds of things that people know, what the hell is that thing hanging over that block? Those are the things that you have to tell every four years and people mm-hmm. that have seen it say, Oh yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. But you know, they're, they're, those people are watching swimming every four years. Yeah. So they're going to forget.
0: Let's dig you into know, the, They
1: just forget.
0: Yeah. That was wonderful. Let's dig into the technical aspects. Now, um, the stories are, and that's, that's very true that the stories are what kind of set the stage and make the Olympics more exciting, make the audience more able to invest. What I'm gathering so far from you is the big thing you had to learn was basically remove a lot of yourself and be a vessel for the voices in your ear, the storylines, the stories you have to tell, um, the expertise that you're portraying to the audience, you're absorbing a lot of information and basically giving it um, like you're a medium for everybody else and not necessarily entirely Rowdy Gaines who I'd be talking to right now in this, in this interview one-on-one you're, you're, you're a carrier for this information. So let's talk about how you, you guys prepare to convey this information and to get ready for a broadcast day. Um, Say it's Olympics in 16 and before day one, you guys have a production meeting. What's going on throughout that day that you can tell us about.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, if you back up from that a little bit, you, you back up to where uh, we get to the Olympic games about a week or 10 days ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and before that, we travel with the team to their training site. So in 16, we went to, um, well, it was in Atlanta in 16. Um, we've been to, um, gosh, where does Rafael Nadal live, um, where he's from? In 12, they were in somewhere in France. And mm-hmm. in. in and eight, they were in Singapore. So we went to their training camps and we kind of immerse ourselves in with the team. We could eat meals with them. The coaches have always been wonderful. We could attend practices. We just hang out in the lobby in the hotel all day. Mm -hmm. And we do that for three or four days and get to know the American athletes. Um, And then that gives us a lot of internal stuff that we can use. Obviously I take notes and everything, but a lot of it's just getting to know the kids because some of the kids I don't know. And they are, you know, a lot of kids, they're they're brand new for the on the team um a lot of a lot of people's stories changes every four years obviously you look at michael's story it it was a completely different story every four he, years he swam so it's getting to know that story and what he had been through the, the previous four years and then that production day or production meeting um we it, it it's very technical in a way we go through each race um we pick heroes so, meaning we pick the person we want to isolate on, and you've you watched the ISL. It's sort of like the same thing we do here. We pick the heroes who we want to show before the race, and they, and uh, and then we talk about them as they're standing behind the block, getting ready to race. Mm-hmm. Um, and we may pick two heroes. We may just pick one. Uh, and we call them heroes. And um,
0: that's the te- not, that is the technical. That's term the though.
1: technical name. That's okay. the technical name. It's not. They're not real heroes. We just call it you know who 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 are we picking as our heroes and uh again technically um and uh, and then we go over replays uh and in the Olympics, Tommy always asked me what replays I want to see, what replays are we gonna show mm-hmm. um and you know i I kind of know in my mind what replays we want to do, and uh, so I pick the replays and um of course that ch- can change obviously depending on the, what type of race it turns out to be but we we're pretty good on sticking to the type of replays that we know are going to come in and we always know that michael is going to have a great last turn so that replay is very critical show his last turn underwater mm. above the water um show anthony Irvin's start you know how slow it is and let's make sure we really iso his start in the finals because if he has a good start he's going to win the race you know things like that so i can at least prepare them Um, to know what's going to happen so uh, and then um, a lot of it is on interviews talking about the on deck you know with uh, with Michelle and um, what she's going to see on the deck uh, as far as interviews and the types of questions that need to be asked about the races and who to ask Uh, and then Dan and I and Mike Unger will sit down after that for about an hour and go through each race and each individual in that race and come up with a a little nugget on each one because Dan introduces each one individually. So he likes to have, you know, specific nuggets on each one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and then we, and then we talk race strategy for each race. Mike will go sit down with me for another half an hour. And then we go over how this race is going to shape up. So, uh, going back to 2008, Austin, you know, I don't have the sheet with me anymore but I, I break, uh, the relays are my funnest thing to do because I break the relays down every single time and base it on what I think they can go, what they've been lifetime, what they've been here, uh, everything, I put them all together. And that's why that relay every single time. And I, and I do six scenarios, mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of combine the scenarios to see who's going to win the race. And I'm pretty good on, on each of my calls. And,
0: uh, yeah. So, you have, every a, you have a system ton. in place.
1: I have a system in place. And every single scenario in 08 said France. Mm-hmm. Every single one. And I even gave Jason Lezak a 46-3 on the anchor. Which and is, if he would have gone 46-3, he would have lost.
0: <laughs> which is almost a second faster than anybody had ever oh, gone correct. up to that point.
1: Correct. So, I'm like, okay, I'm giving the Americans best possibilities, worst possibilities, somewhere in the middle. Same with France, same with Australia. I mean, I, it, it takes me probably two hours per relay to, to go through this system that I have to be able to break it down and based on those scenarios, that's why I predict and that's why I predicted France because nobody thought that Jason was gonna go 46 flat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that, that's kind of a production day for us. Um, we are at the pool, you know, 18 hours a day uh, we don't go back between prelims and finals. There's a little cot that's on the floor um, to take those legendary naps. To, <laughs> to take those legendary naps, so Dan and I usually grab a 45-minute nap, and uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's you know it's not for the faint of heart. Again, it's first world problems, not for the faint of heart, but it's it's uh, it's intense, man. It's an intense eight days, but it's 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 the funnest eight days that you'll ever spend in your life. Wish you could be a fly on the wall on that because you would be, uh, you'd say, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing ever.
0: Um, so it sounds like, because that 2008 race, I've watched it along with anybody else who's obsessed with swimming. I've watched that race 100, 200 times, 300 times all over right. the last 12 years. Who knows, it could be a thousand. It's a way to jack into some adrenaline. And like you said, all of your models pointed to France which means nice. you are calling that race as if France was going to win. Right. And it's without you realizing it, maybe it adds to the drama of the race. Every time I watch right. it's I, I don't feel, I feel like I don't know what Danny's going to be. Cause you say, I don't know, Dan, like
1: twice. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, even down to the last
0: 10 yards, you're like, it's just right. not going to be enough, but it adds <laughs> to the drama. So yeah, yeah, yeah. do you have other, um, I want, I want to set the stage for this question better. I know that that system's in place and I know that the heroes thing is definitely something that happens throughout the broadcasting industry because, um, I had a friend who won NCAs in 2011 and the other friend that was in the heat with him was selected as definitely selected as one of the heroes for that race, the one that they would focus the storyline on. And I know that because when the friend who won the race got out of the water, the on-deck reporter called him by the other person's name and he was so he was so excited he had no clue that he was called he was just like oh I gave 110 percent but it was very clear that the narrative was focused on the other person in that race so do you have situations like that where you had to kind of and and always the obvious one where you kind of had to pivot on a dime and kind of start scribbling like oh my gosh I got to make this change here because something just absolutely incredible happened
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. All the time. But I'm pre- when at the Olympics, Austin, not so much on other broadcasts. A lot of that, you know, you don't do as much preparation. But boy, at the Olympics, we're so prepared for surprises,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. Um,
0: right. Because you mentioned the six scenarios that you have.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, well, on the relays especially, but even on, in the, I will tell you, there has, there have been situations where we were totally unprepared for. Her. An example for you would be, uh remember Ruta Meletite mm-hmm. In two thousand and twelve, she was just like little fifteen, sixteen year old girl that won the gold medal in twenty twelve. Rebecca Soni was a heavy favorite, and there, I think, it was also – Liesl Jones was in there anyway. Um I'd never even heard of her, and even going we didn't have any information on her she's from lithuania i mean we we didn't have we had zero information mm-hmm. and uh so when she got to the finals we were definitely scrambling on trying to find info we just didn't have very much and we thought well she's not going to win anyway and then she won and it was like holy crap but that was the story mm-hmm. i mean that was the beauty of that race was the fact that here's a little girl and she was a girl she's 15 16 years old mm-hmm. and she came out of nowhere and she beat the best in the world and the story was this this huge shocker and for us it we even said i even said you know i don't have a lot of information on on her everybody i can't tell you much about her because we don't know much about her mm-hmm. so it was it, that that's the kind of thing and you have to do that a lot with the chinese because the chinese don't have information you don't know any stories on the chinese um so yeah it it happens a lot, but pretty much man i I tell you you got to be prepared for um for surprises, so you know a lot, especially in Olympics, we have not anymore it's all online, but we have books and books that I used to they used to send us to the hotel, so I would literally i'd camp out of my room for like a week before the Olympics and do nothing but study. Mm-hmm. I knew more about those kids swimming than they knew about themselves. <laughs> I say that somewhat facetiously, but I could tell you a lot about each one of them.
0: Let's wrap with the ISL because I I know you got to go. What should we be looking out for in the finals? Who is a swimmer or a team that you've been particularly excited about over the last five weeks that the audience should key in on?
1: Well, obviously Cali, just because they haven't lost, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's such an obvious choice because they have the superstars, you know, they have Lily, they have, and the biggest superstar of all, they have Caleb and Caleb uh, in in this season, I don't know if it's going to continue, but you know, the people that are watching the ISL are at least becoming familiar with this jackpotting of points. And that's the dilemma you have with the superstars. If you're the other teams is getting jackpotted and meaning if this guy does really good, like Caleb Dressel did in the hundred IM, he took everybody else's points Mm -hmm. because they were so much, so many seconds behind him. So, if that continues to happen that's that's just so hard to make up and then they had some role players that really stepped up like Haley Flickener is not a role player but you know she's she stepped up in the 400 free and I am, for example you know she's good in the 200 fly but she kind of said okay Melanie Margallis is not here I'm going to be able to step up and, and 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 score some really big points in those races um a Zoranik um a C-slack you know these guys that don't you know the average person doesn't know a lot about boy they have They've stepped up all of a sudden, and and they'll make a difference. Justin, Justin Ress and Coleman Stewart in the backstroke. So these these guys are all thought of as role players coming in, I think, and now they're stepping up and, and able, able to get top three finishes. So I, and, and, again, I've said it on the broadcast, everything boils down to re, uh, relays, man. You know, this is – you know, you've been there a million times in a, mm-hmm. in a college dual-mat format. Um, relays are – that's what it is. It's it, it. I wouldn't say it's a glorified sprint meet like NCAA's and uh, and and college dual meets, but it's a glorified college meet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, sprints and relays are where it's at.
0: I imagine and, that's a point of reference for everybody there, including the production team, to kind of be familiar with what's going on instead of it being a completely uh, singular experience.
1: Yeah, and energy has the same thing on the women's side. The men are not as strong on Cali, except for. I mean, they have strong men, obviously, but uh, Energy's women is stronger than Callie's women overall, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I don't know. I haven't studied it on paper, but just sure. from observing, uh, I'll start studying tomorrow. I took t- t- two days <laughs> off. Um, but I think Energy, obviously, with Scheustrom, who is really kind of the female Caleb Dressel that can do pretty much anything for um, for for Energy, will be able to step up. And they have two other really good women with um, Hemskirk and... Just one more. Oh, Shabbat mm-hmm. So those three right there, that, that's a killer for relays, you know? Yeah. Um, um, and then they've got Pilato for the breaststroke. So they, they, they have really strong relays and the medley relays are even more critical because they pick the skins. The skins are not as critical here because everybody has a really key person in the skins. Um, but this meet has been great. I'm, and I, like I said, I, we have these sheets, um, I've never shared this, but uh, so we, you can't really see it here, but we have these sheets, Austin, and it tells you um, all the things that you kind of need to know um, for a background. Larry Her developed them in in Colorado, and this guy named Jonathan uh, does it from Great Britain. He's awesome, but it it gives you all-time top 10. It gives you everybody of those top three and all the ISL raises. It's got ISL top time, and then it gives you little nuggets um um little nuggets um with uh all yeah. these uh all these individuals and their rating and um kind of historical stuff what they've done this season and and so I make notes on those um and you know i i i wrote i i write down like who has the Canadian record? Because we're broadcasting to Canada, we're broadcasting to Britain, so I can't just say it's an American record. I I I try to do as much as I can to get other countries too. So, mm-hmm. um, and then I write down the world's record splits. You can see that I'm I'm writing down splits and everything to kind of keep the audience. It's a swimming audience. Um, and then remember we were talking before the uh the before we started. I how many ways can you say streamline? Right? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah right
1: so i get criticized for that all the time like you know he's so repetitive in what he talks about well yeah because i'm calling in 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 rio i called 223 races Mm
0: -hmm.
1: over eight days that's a lot of freaking races man (laughs) so how do do you call how do you call how do you say streamline off the wall you know you can only say it so many ways so that's why i have like terms which i've Mm -hmm. never shown anybody but i have all these terms that I come up with to try to give some variation to all the different strokes. Um, uh, I even have specific individuals and what they have done. And I, I could do a turns, like here's the one on uh, turn fly and breast turns and different mm-hmm. terms that you try to use because, you know, you can only say tight and low so many times without kind of saying, you know, staying repetitive. So I, kind of generally know what I'm going to talk about each each race to try to keep it as fresh as possible.
0: Uh, that's phenomenal inf- info, Rowdy. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Um, I really loved getting an inside look into the life of the, the, the voice of swimming, like we said at the top. Um, thank you for everything you do, and thanks again for coming to talk to me today.
1: Hey, Austin, man, you need to come take my place. You'd be great at it, man. You'd be good at it. So when I'm... Um... I'm I'm gonna they're gonna get rid of me sooner or later, so you you can step right in, my brother.
0: I appreciate hey, and that.
1: Wh- and one other thing, um, and by the way, great job today. One other thing. Give your mom and dad a big hug for me.
0: Will do. They I know wow. they love you and they always talk about how great you've been to them. Yeah, awesome. Have fun with the finals, Rowdy. Thank you. All right, that's the show. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Rowdy. Um, like I've said a couple times over in the intros. And as you can tell from the episode, I deeply enjoyed speaking with him and I loved his insights and how generous he was with his time and his willingness to just dive so deep into his process. I I hope everybody got an image of someone who's deeply dedicated to their craft and is willing to drill deep into specific skills to get the most out of that craft. Um, If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And also follow at ProCornerPodcast on Instagram for all updates, um, all video clips from the episode. I also posted an exclusive clip that I recorded with Rowdy. I posted that last week, and it's something that you could not hear in this specific episode. He digs into ways to improve public speaking for everybody. Um, If you want to follow me, I'm at Austin Seroff on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have anything you want to chat about, um, feedback on the podcast, um, talk to me about training, swimming, sports, whatever it is. I love interacting with people that I meet through this space. You can reach me at austin at procornerpodcast.com. That is the email address that I check most often, and it's the one associated with this podcast. So it's a good chance I'm going to respond to you pretty quickly if you reach out. Uh, Beyond that, thank you for stopping by, and have a great day. See you all next week.